A lot of ESG, even as recent as five years ago, it was, okay, here's your asset allocation, and that's all properly done. And okay, let's leave a little bit over here for speculation and a little bit over here to do good things. And that was ESG. I, I call the first stage the thou shalt not, right? So thou shalt not invest in sin stocks. And then the second stage was the thou shalt, right? So thou shalt invest in good things. And where we are now is this idea that we have to look at portfolios and say, in my portfolio, where is the ESG risk? And how am I going to think about managing that risk, either through diversification or through working with my holdings and saying, you know, I'm a large institutional investor and I actually can swing some weight here. From McKinsey's strategy and corporate finance practice, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard from Ron O'Hanley as he pointed out that understanding ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance issues, has become a critical part of managing the risks that industries and the investors in those industries face. As the CEO and chair of State Street Corporation, Ron leads one of the largest and oldest asset management companies in the world, and their focus on ESG and stakeholder capitalism has grown significantly across the years. In his conversation with Celia Huber, a senior partner based in our Silicon Valley office, Ron discusses the evolution of investor interest in ESG, its relationship to investment risk, the gaps in corporate America's resilience that the pandemic revealed, and finally, State Street's efforts to disrupt its own business. This conversation is taken from a fireside chat held during a virtual event that we recently hosted with the CEOs of leading global businesses. Now, here's Celia. Ron, I have to say, you've done so much at State Street and in the banking industry, it's hard to capture even just the highlights. In short, Ron is now the chairman and CEO of State Street and was previously president and chief operating officer. Ron joined State Street in 2015 as CEO of State Street Global Advisors, the investment management arm of the company. Some of Ron's previous roles include president of asset management and corporate services for Fidelity Investments, president and CEO of BNY Mellon Asset Management, and a partner at McKinsey, where he founded the asset management practice. Just to give our audience a sense of the organization you lead, State Street is one of the world's largest servicers and managers of institutional assets. With $38 trillion in assets under custody and or administration, and $3.5 trillion in assets under management. State Street has 40,000 employees and contractors worldwide. It is great to welcome you, Ron. So let's pick this up by starting on the pandemic. Tell us how you think the crisis of the past year has affected your organization. How has it impacted your industry more broadly? And how has State Street responded? First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. As you noted, we do two things. We, uh, we're a custodian and asset servicer, which really means we provide a lot of the infrastructure for the investors to make their investments, to put them into funds, to uh, affect the trades that go around them. So truly the, the infrastructure of the capital markets. And then secondly, we're a very large asset manager, third largest in the world. 
you know, we'd always, we, we always do these tabletop exercises. We always have, you know, what are key risks and pandemic was out there, but certainly I don't think anybody had any idea in terms of what it would mean, certainly for most businesses. You know, for us, it was a little bit counterintuitive because we know what went on, right? The pandemic hit, economic activity was shutting down. Our activity was going up because as markets were reacting to all this, you'll recall the kind of transaction volumes and volatility. That's when we get really busy. So here we are in March, uh, sending home about 90% of our people being told by virtually every country that we operate in the world that we're designating you as essential. But there were many countries where it was just simply impossible for us to keep, even though we were designated essential, to keep people in the office, just given the the epidemiological conditions there. And in many ways, it was a good test of resiliency. And I think that's really the theme, certainly, that I think about and that we as a firm think about in terms of the great learnings coming out of this. I mean, the resiliency I'm talking about here is actually quite narrow, operational resiliency. It's the reason why we are a GCFI, a, a global systemically important financial institution. We're not there because we you know, have a big balance sheet. We're there because of this, this capital markets activity, and we therefore have put a lot of money and technology into resiliency. And the good news is it paid off. We had a little bit of a head start, although I would hesitate to say that we predicted what would happen, but we have a big operation in China, 3,000 people. And so we saw what had happened in late January of 2020. In effect, we had to shut down that operation two days and go from 100% to 50% to zero in, in about two days. So we got a little bit of a flavor of what it would take. Uh, I'd like to say that that got us ready for the remaining 37,000. It didn't because we didn't anticipate it would uh, move on like that. I think the the, the lessons coming out of this, like I said, is this point around resilience. And I think it's something that business and society need to be thinking through very hardly right now. Because, I mean, it's great that there were these extraordinary movements on the part of global policymakers, global central banks, etc. But it, at some point, you have to ask, wouldn't we have been better off to have invested in our public health infrastructure, for example? There's much of what used to be there that isn't there. I would also say capital, right? The banking industry got forced into a recapitalization back after 2008, uh, and it was appropriate given the, the size of these institutions, the scope of activities, the inherent uh, and the unknown risk in some of these activities. But if you look at most businesses now, they're actually carrying far less capital. And at some point, you have to ask, are we going to kind of uh, run the world, anticipating that there's going to be able to be the kind of interventions that we've seen to, you know, in effect, make up for the investments that weren't made in resiliency. So, and I think boards have to take a look at it too. I mean, it, it, how do you think about, for example, a stock buyback, right, which is returning capital, you know, versus investing it in some form of resiliency? You're talking a lot about resiliency and infrastructure, and I wonder if we might step away from your role as CEO of State Street for a minute and your broader role as an investor and on boards, and just think about the ESG implications of that. So I think about ESG really in two ways. I mean, we've all got our kind of personal or moral view about it. Right. So that's one way. But leaving kind of what I personally believe or don't believe, 
I think about it as an investor as part of the investment risk framework, right? I think a lot of ESG, even as recent as five years ago, it was, okay, here's your asset allocation and that's all properly done. And okay, let's leave a little bit over here for speculation and a little bit over here to do good things. And that was ESG. I call the first stage the thou shalt not, right? So thou shalt not invest in sin stocks. And then the second stage was the thou shalt, right? So thou shalt invest in good things. And where we are now is this idea that we have to look at portfolios and say, in my portfolio, where is the ESG risk? And how am I going to think about managing that risk, either through diversification or through working with my holdings? And saying, you know, I'm a large institutional investor and I actually can swing some weight here and and get some of these holdings to do something. It's been interesting that the big indexers were early on in this and it's a little bit counterintuitive because it's, well, they're passive investors. Doesn't that mean that, you know, the machine does it and they sleep? It's actually quite the opposite because a passive investor basically has to own the index. And it has to own every company in the index. I always say that because we have a large index business, I can't get upset with some company and say, you know, from now on, it's now the S&P 499. We're not going to own that stock. So we've got to own it. And therefore, it's the closest thing to permanent capital and public markets. And it was the index managers that said, you know what, we don't have the tool of divestment. So we've got to be engaged with these portfolio companies. And engagement meant starting to push on some of these ESG factors. Early on, it was around the G element of it, governance. And a lot of that was informed by some of the things that happened, you know, going back 20 years ago. You you remember some of the uh, corporate scandals that occurred over that time. And what's the oversight model here? Is it good oversight? How does it actually work? You know, board hygiene kinds of things. It's very much moved into the E element of it. And a lot of it's just practical. I always use the example of coal. I always say, tell me when peak market capitalization was for coal, right? And everybody always gets it wrong. They get it wrong usually by decades. Peak market capitalization was in 2011. And if you look at it now, it's a fraction of that. So what happened then? Those investors that were buying in in 2011, what didn't they know or what should they have known uh, as it relates to the E part of ESG. And if you think about where we are now and think about the risk of climate change, and again, risk is nothing more than the statement that more things can happen than will happen. But it's incorporating those risks into the portfolio you own. Some of it is pretty obvious. If you're a big real estate investor, you probably do want to take some read on what's the risk that my properties are going to be underwater or unattractive because you know the shoreline is moved or flooding is more frequent. Some of it is a lot more subtle, right? In terms of, okay, I own a chemical company and its feedstocks are, you know, these various kinds of petrochemicals, right, that may actually be far more costly down the road, or in fact, maybe legislative out of business. So it's this idea of incorporating it all into the investment risk framework that I think is quite important. Boards, I think, initially thought a little bit like the investment community. Well, okay, we ought to have a sustainability committee, and that's kind of our feel-good committee. And they'll just make sure we're doing the right things. Increasingly, now, 
we're literally having this conversation on my here at State Street. We're having it on another board that I'm sitting on. It's how do we make sure that all these elements of ESG, these risk elements, get incorporated into the charters and oversights of the various committees? So it's a challenging time, but it's an exciting time. So, Ron, if I put together your comments on risk and the level of uncertainty, as well as the notion of resilience, what's your advice for CEOs and management teams on how to convey that accurately to the board or their investors? I personally think framing it in risk is the best way to do it because CEOs are used to thinking that way and boards are used to overseeing that way. I think if you frame it in any other way, it all of a sudden becomes um, a values argument. And again, I think values are very important, but we like to say it's not a values argument, it's a value argument. What's this business that we have worth if, in fact, our beliefs about where the sea level is going to be or our beliefs about the cost of fossil fuel or beliefs even about the availability of certain fossil fuels changes over the long term. So I think it's most effective to put it in a risk form. By the way, we've only talked about G and E. S is the latest frontier. And again, I don't think even three years ago, it was inherently obvious to to people why that was going to be equally as important to the other two. But it is. I mean, if you think about customer bases, I mean, I heard a statistic the other day that 50% of the elementary school children in the United States are non-white, right? So that's just a sign of that uh, our cust- if, if you're a retailer, our customer base is changing, right? And if we thought about that, if we thought about who's managing this company, Right? If we thought about who's overseeing this company, we thought about product development. I, I'm not trying to dismiss values, but it really is about value. And, and how do we think about what's the right thing to do for all of our stakeholders? And again, that stakeholder capitalism has become this kind of lightning rod. You know, my view here is, is very simple. Uh, we are not going to create, uh, we're not going to maximize shareholder value if we disregard the rest of the stakeholders. Right. I mean, we're a talent based business, right? If we're not attracting and retaining the best talent, our shareholders are going to suffer, right? Our investors are very worried about uh, these E, S, and G issues, right? If we're not paying attention to those, we're not going to have a customer base. So I think to think about all that in a risk framework and think about it as even how you would manage the risk of sales, manage the risk of the product cycle, you know, manage the risk of operations and, uh, and you know, operational and technological availability. I think that becomes a lot more natural to think about it in terms of a management model. I, I want to pull one thread from what you're talking about. The customer base is changing, and that talent pool is changing, and State Street has made some pretty bold statements, including uh, there was the notable Fearless Girl campaign. I think it was 2017 where you all took the sponsorship of installing the statue of the Fearless Girl on Wall Street facing the bull. And I thought you might just expand on what this campaign means, especially this year. Yeah, you had a, a addition to the installation of the glass ceiling, the broken glass ceiling? Fearless Girl had very modest beginnings. One of my colleagues had what's turned out to be just an extraordinary idea. It was to coincide with 
International Women's Day that year in 2017, we were formally incorporating into our stewardship guidelines women on boards and not just the the numbers of women on a particular board, but we were going to be looking through to the board and trying to understand what they were doing to build diversity, particularly gender diversity at the time on boards. So this was meant to be a one-week thing to punctuate that. It obviously took off, uh, talk about viral, and ended up getting a a permanent spot there in, in New York. But it was there to underscore the importance and the role of boards in terms of making this change happen. So it was put on Wall Street, not to challenge the bowl, but it was put on Wall Street to illustrate that the way we were going to make inroads was not by having some regulator tell you what to do, but by boards incorporating it into the way into their oversight model in terms of how they were overseeing and governing these companies. It has been the most dressed up uh, statue in New York for various kinds of reasons. It's had everything from a St. Patrick's Day headdress to when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, their, her, her neckwear was put on there. The glass ceiling was quite intentional too. It was a little bit of it was to celebrate, right? That um, uh, not just since the installation of Fearless Girl, but if you look at the progress that's happened on gender, there have been a lot of glass ceilings broken most recently in the in the in the last election. And again, I keep coming back to this value versus values. I have a value, right, that diversity is good, but it really is about, again, McKinsey's done a lot of this work demonstrating that more diverse boards, more diverse management teams actually lead to better long-term outcomes. As long-term investors, that's really important to us. So Fearless Girl is meant to be a way to kind of illustrate this. That's terrific, Ron. And I wonder if we might just uh, go back to within State Street now and talk a little bit about your strategy. So, of course, just before the pandemic began, you had been the CEO for over a year and you obviously had a strategic agenda at that time. What parts of it are still relevant and how did you work with your top team to adapt during this time your strategic priorities? Yeah, as you said, I'd, I'd become CEO the year before and I'd become president the year before that. So I really had two years before the pandemic. And that year as president was a great year, it was a transition year. My predecessor was still here. And I got to focus very deeply on uh, on our strategy. And if you think about our business, there's two parts to it, asset management and investment services. That latter one is about 80% of what we do. So I was very focused on that. It's a great business. It's a business that's really about the infrastructure of capital markets. But it was also a business that was changing. A lot of the ways that growth came from were no longer there. In, in many respects, it was because uh, the professionalization of investing had really happened throughout the world. So there weren't a lot more mutual funds, for example, to be formed, a lot more mu- mutual fund ranges. But the other thing that was going on was uh, investment organizations had grown from being these small boutiques to being these massive enterprises, many of which had started, you know, they weren't startups any longer. They were 30, 40, 50 years old. And their technology and operations reflected that of a boutique. Our own firm was a great example, uh, State Street Global Advisors, about a 50-year-old firm when I got there. It had three order management systems, 19 risk systems. 
And that isn't just because, you know, there was a tech budget run amok, right? It was at the time, as you grew, you just added on what you needed for it. There wasn't really a lot of commercial options. So oftentimes it was proprietary. You fast forward now, the investment industry is facing the same challenge that virtually every other industry is. uh, And it's all around data. And it's a combination of having the right data and more typically managing that flood of data that we have. And this technology was not working with each other. Uh, It was creating real operational issues. This was at the same time that our client base, which is large asset managers and large asset owners themselves, were undergoing, they were having their own economic pressures. So we, as part of our strategy in uh, 2018, 2019, started pivoting to, in addition to what we were doing as a core infrastructure provider and a back office provider, to actually become an enterprise outsourcer to these firms. We identified what we didn't have, built a lot of it out organically, and then made a acquisition that was large for us at the time, Charles River Development, to, in effect, create a front-to-back enterprise outsource offering. Pandemic came, and a couple of challenges right away that we recognized. One, 2020 was a very ambitious year for us in terms of technology delivery and software delivery. And two, we had a lot of conversations underway that we were uncertain if they would be able to be carried on, given that we were all remote. And again, this is a very different sales cycle if you're outsourcing something. Anybody that's either an outsourcer or has outsourced something, know that there's a big solutioning part of the sales cycle that needs to occur. And a little bit of it was, how are we going to do this solutioning remotely? So I I must say that we, we were focused in March and April just first on getting our employees safe. Secondly, there was just unbelievable market upheaval. And, and again, our some of our clients, for example, were pension funds. They were concerned about their own liquidity, their ability to, if, again, markets were dropping, the last thing you want to do is sell your portfolio in a market that's dropped, but they needed liquidity, if only simply to pay their beneficiaries who are trying to offer up liquidity solutions there, working ways that we could actually finance that for them using some of their portfolio as collateral. We're very focused on that. By April and May, started saying, okay, now what are we going to do about this uh, strategic pivot we're making? You know, remarkably, the technology worked. I mean, we have a client now that we actually started this conversation in April of last year. There's only one of us that has ever met this institution physically. So part of it was just really pivoting to the technology and working it and making it happen. In many respects, um, we're fortunate because if somebody had to be convinced that they needed to upgrade their technology and operations, the events of last year, I think, showed them that. And by the way, it's not just troubled institutions, right? Some of the most successful fund managers in the world have come to us, and their view is this. We could afford to do it. In fact, we could probably afford to do it as equally as you can, State Street. But we'd rather put our money and our incremental resources into developing better sources of investment return. I wanted to turn a little bit to more personal leadership questions. Of course, you talked about how the culture and leadership is so important in developing your people. Uh, And I wondered if you might just give us a little bit of your thoughts on leadership and how they've evolved as you've changed positions over the years uh, and during the pandemic. You know, I don't know if my views have changed 
during the pandemic, but you start to think about your views a lot more in a crisis like this, and you become much more mindful about what you're doing. 2008 was a was a different kind of crisis. In there, there were some existential concerns on the part of everybody in financial services. In the pandemic, I think it was really thinking much, as I said earlier, thinking much more about the health of our employees than we ever had before. One, we have to equip them to be able to work remotely. You know, we've got great technology, unlimited bandwidth, you know, all those things that we don't have at home. So you start to think about that. You know, more recently, and again, it sounds naive now, but we sent people home in March. We were planning on getting them back on May 1st. And then we said, okay, no, it'll be it'll be Memorial Day. I don't know why. We always pinned it around a U.S. holiday. Memorial Day, 4th of July, Labor Day. And then I think we gave up trying to even predict it any longer. I think that there's, while there's a lot that's worked, there's also a lot that's lacking in this current way of working. And we're up to about 20% now system-wide in the office. But what's missing out of this is, firstly, innovation just takes longer. It is taking longer. And part of it is, it's that, you know, it's that we've all been in them, right? It's that conference table with papers everywhere, whiteboards, if you're old-fashioned, the paper actually taped to the wall, where you get some of those breakthrough kinds of things. Certainly, the strategy we're operating on came out of rooms like that. Uh, There's also an apprenticeship element. I'm very concerned that since this pandemic started, we have hired 2,000 people. There's 2,000 people that are new to State Street, and most of them have never met anybody physically. And, you know, I think about my own career and the importance of just watching and observing and being around somebody and listening to them and, and, and seeing, oh, that's how they do that. We very much will be back in the office, but I, it will, what will be is much more mindful about why we're in the office. So I think this is going to be a grand experiment, but you then start to worry about people's mental health. And again, mental health is not something that we talk about much. Certainly, we don't talk about it much in, you know, in an employment situation. It's no question that even those people that are in comfortable situations, nice homes and all that, the routines have been disrupted, and it could be they're not doing fine at all. So I think um, this idea of, of being much more mindful about what is the real kind of health and well-being and mindset of our employees at any given time. I think the second thing that you really think about a lot in a in a crisis situation like this, uh, particularly when you're asking people to do different things, is we're all very smart, or we assume we're smart. And so we've got the what down, right? We know what needs to be done. We oftentimes know how to do it, although I would argue that oftentimes leaders do that too much. You should define the what, but leave the how to the people that are actually going to do it. But we don't spend enough time on the why. Many longtime employees will often question, gee, why are we taking this very public stand on something, right? You know, why do we want to attract attention to ourselves? And it's a very good question, right? And I think deserves an answer. Why do we think it's so important to take a stand on voting rights, right? You know, I think there's a fundamental question that people are rightfully asking is, you know, is it even the role of CEOs and companies to be doing this? But again, I go back to that you're not going to satisfy the shareholder 
if you don't satisfy the rest of the stakeholders. And I think it becomes very difficult for firms to ignore these issues when people know that uh, they actually have quite a bit of power in, and they've got quite a bit of influence and what they say actually does matter. So I, I, I think it's a little bit of, if you're going to use your power and you know this is the right thing, then why not do it? You need to make sure that you can actually make a difference and that you're actually willing to follow through on something. I mean, just to sign on to something and not believe that you can make a difference, I don't think makes sense because it's like anything else. You're going to erode your voice. But I think that the real danger is most firms may underestimate the difference that they can actually make here. Great, Ron. I can't thank you enough. I know it's a very busy time of year for you, so we appreciate you taking the time out to join us today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion. You can read the transcript of the conversation on our Inside the Strategy Room page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR for Inside the Strategy Room, where you can also easily explore, filter, and search our library of more than 50 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast episode, we encourage you to email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. And if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest strategy and corporate finance insights, you can sign up on the Inside the Strategy Room collection page on mckinsey.com ITSR, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn by visiting the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.